Thank you for, for coming. Happy Valentine's Day. And I was just telling um, one of the parents that I received an email like a few weeks ago asking to give this talk on Valentine's Day. And um, the reason why I accepted like immediately, um, not only you know to show off to the parents like, yes, I'm your daughter's teacher, but, but also um, I teach ninth grade and 10th grade and 12th grade. And so you're reading the same books at the same time, or you're reading all the books at the same time. And so you just naturally make all these different connections with the different books. And so when they said, oh yeah, we want something about love and marriage. And at the time, I was teaching the Odyssey to the ninth graders and um, Merchant of Venice to the 10th graders. So I was just like, oh my gosh, this, there's so many similarities, this fits perfectly. So, um, so that's why I decided to do these books because they're actually the books that are in our curriculum. So just to let you, let you know that. And then um, I actually first, I'm gonna start talking, before I get into the stories, I'm gonna actually talk a little bit about um, University of Dallas. I'm very proud of my education. And one reason why I'm so proud of my education is because it transformed my life. So studying in college, and especially with my, my particular teachers that I had, um, it really just changed me. And this particular teacher um, who I used for my paper, Louise Cowan, she was, um, she just died three years ago and she died um, at the age of 99, and she was teaching until she was 99 and right before she died. She just continued teaching all the way to the end. And she was um, a founder of UD and their Great Books program, and also um, they have a graduate school as well. And now there's other ones, but it was the first one that had um, or has an interdisciplinary great books program, a PhD. Um, so they're all relating to one another. So uh, Dr. Louise, she was my teacher, not only for graduate school, which is where I went um, for UD, but University of Dallas, but also in my undergrad. So she also made at a different school, the curriculum, the great books curriculum at a school called Thomas More College in Merrimack, New Hampshire. It's just like a little teeny tiny college. And so that's kind of where it all started. And she would come from UD to New Hampshire, to New Hampshire, um, to Thomas More, and she would teach us classes there. Um, so as an undergraduate, I first met her, you know, at 17 years old. And that's when I really started getting into learning and literature. And so before that, I had no interest really at all. So it just really, really opened my eyes and changed my life. So um, I'm using her ideas about genre, that's kind of her specialty, the genre theory, and um, in this case, it's gonna be about comedy. So um, in her understanding of comedy, She's one of the first ones for so long, since Aristotle. Aristotle is the first one who came up with the idea of genre. So, you know, you go into Barnes and Noble and you see, you know, history, fiction, nonfiction. So um, she was the one who came up with 
this kind of new understanding of what makes a comedy. And so what I'm going to talk about then is how the Odyssey and the Merchant of Venice share many of the same qualities. As I was reading them, I was noticing them all and teaching them. Um, and the reason is because they're both comedies. And so what I'm going to try and show you um, in my talk is how they're a comedy. How are they a comedy? And um, maybe just let me read just a little bit about what is a comedy. So just a little bit. So first of all, what is a genre? So according to, going back to Aristotle, so going back to the Greeks, they're the ones, Aristotle is the one who comes up with these patterns. And I think the best way to really think about it is um, creating a world. This is what Dr. Louis says, that this idea of creating a world. You're entering this world, and this world has certain rules, certain feelings, a certain um, way to be. And so right away, you know you're in a comic world. You know immediately, as a matter of fact. So she says, a genre is a pattern in reality in which the poet apprehends and then imitates in language. It is an interior organizing principle that places a work in a certain world. So this idea of what world are you in? So if this helps you at all, think about um, a tragedy and how different Hamlet or even the Iliad, think of the wrath of Achilles, I don't know if you know that story, or Hamlet when it starts out with all these questions and the whole entire tragedy, you just know it's a tragedy. You feel it, you feel that it's a tragedy. So I think it's the same way with, um, with a comedy, but it, it's a little bit harder to detect in some ways because sometimes the comedies, and I'm thinking um, more of Shakespeare here, that it can feel like, oh my gosh, how is this ever gonna work out in the end? You know, this feels like it's going to be a tragedy the way that it's unfolding. You just see, oh, what a mess this all is. And I guess the big difference with the tragedy and a comedy would be that um, this idea that I'm going to talk about with trickery and disguise and delay and testing all these things of a comedy, it kind of gives the protagonist room to move, to escape the bad fortune, to work out a bad situation. So um, that's why comedy is so full of playfulness and disguises, testing. So it's just a way for um, everything to unfold in a happier way because there's more time. Where in a tragedy, everything is kind of moving towards that terrible ending that you know is eventually coming. So, um, so that's why um, comedy is fun on the one hand, but it's also weird. Like, I don't know if you remember your, your students. I don't know if, um, what grades your daughters might be in. But for example, the eighth graders with Midsummer's Night's Dream, it's always like, what is going on in the woods and then the city and these fairies? You know, there's, they're so strange. And so a lot of times, um, readers and scholars, they kind of misinterpret what's going on because they're not really understanding the rules, if you want to think about it like that, or the geography of what a comedy is. Um, okay, so maybe just a little, let me say just a little tiny bit more. So this is gonna be a quote straight from Dr. Louise, and she says that um, to define comedy, it takes place in a fallen world, 
it begins with some sort of disorder um, where people have lived by law, by reason, or by custom, but they've neglected wholeness, pleasure, and love. And it moves towards recapturing those qualities by ingenuity and audacity. Um, its justice is mercy and forgiveness. Its mode of action is deception and delay. Since if fortune and fate is to be the governing authority, one must do whatever is necessary to stave off the ultimate fatal defeat. Life must go on at any cost, since in comedy, life can blossom again, even out of impossibility. So this is very different than tragedy. There can be like renewal, there's hope. And while you're in it, you can kind of feel it. Um, so I'm gonna take these elements that we've just been talking about with comedy and show you um, how they're there in the Odyssey and hopefully to help you understand the Odyssey better. Because even the Odyssey, I kind of, get in disagreements with the students and they're like we don't like Odysseus I'm like what what are you talking about I want to marry him um <laughs> how could you say that and um so I get kind of heated about it so um so hopefully I can win you over to to my view so just some examples <laughs> so we've got Homer's Odyssey we've got Shakespeare um comedies as well and then um, maybe you've heard of Dante and the Divine Comedy. So the Divine Comedy, in a way, as Christians, we can, I mean, Shakespeare is also a Christian too, but Dante kind of um, makes it more obvious, I guess, that really our life is a comedy. That's what all of human life is. We're on a journey like Odysseus, and we're trying to get to our end. We're trying to get to our home. So just like Odysseus is trying to get home, our home is with God, with the beatific vision, right? So um, that's also a reason to love the Odyssey. It portrays this life full of suffering, but we're all looking for that homecoming, the homecoming that Odysseus is looking for. It's awaiting all of us. All of us are going to get there. Um, so I'm going to turn to the Odyssey, and I'm going to turn to the first line. And I'm actually, so our translation, and don't get me wrong, I love this translation, but I stole um, the first line from another translation, Robert Fagel's. This one is Robert Fitzgerald, both very good, different, but good. And the first line just fits better with my topic. Um, <laughs> so um, in the other one, Fagel's, he says, Odysseus is a man of twists and turns. And I don't know if you know this, but the first line of all the epics is always an invocation to the muse. And it's stating the theme of the whole story. So um, for the Iliad, sing to me muse of the wrath of Achilles. So you know the whole story is gonna, uh, gonna be about Achilles and his wrath. While the Odyssey is gonna be about the man Odysseus and his twists and turns. And by that, it's kind of setting up this idea um, of Odysseus being this trickster figure, this comic, trickster figure. He can always get out of tricky situations. And um, my um, talk is going to be more about, because it's Valentine's Day, Portia, or excuse me, Penelope and marriage and love. But um, I just want you to know how much I love Odysseus. <laughs> and um, the fact that he's amazing in this twisting and turning and being able to get out of the hardest situation. So I'm not really going to be talking about his um, great adventures and the monsters and all that fun stuff. I'm skipping to the end. Um, so I'm going to the end because that's where he finally 
gets home. Um, so this whole story, as I was saying, unfolds in this comic world. And um, like I was saying, the students, oftentimes they don't like Odysseus because he deceives. He's in disguise. He tricks people. So, um, and then, you know, and of course, in our Christian world, we're like, that's a sin. That's wrong. He shouldn't do that. And so I have to give this whole explanation that I'm giving you. Um, okay, well, let's get into this world. First of all, it's a pagan world. It's a Greek world. Um, it's this comic world that we've just been talking about. So let's try and understand it in their world. And then at the end, we can, you know, compare it to our world. But first, let's, um, maybe you've heard that um, phrase from Coleridge, willing suspension of disbelief where you just like jump into that book and you have to be in the Harry Potter world and accept the things of that world. Um, and then you can come out and judge it, but first understand it. So that's kind of how I trick them into loving Odysseus like I do. Um, so he deceives others and he even deceives his own wife. So they're like, how can he do that? I'm like, I know, just wait. Um, so he does, he deceives his own wife. He conceals his true self until the very end of the story. He rarely says who he is, um, only in the right moments, only in the right times. Um, he's a master of disguise, artful deceptions. And then even Dante, and here's a real um, conflict for me. Even Dante puts Odysseus in the lowest level of hell. <gasps> what do I do? Dante is one of my favorite poets. And yet he puts one of my favorite characters in hell. Ah, what? Um, so, and but Dante also, just so you know, he didn't know, he didn't read the Odyssey because it was in Greek and it hadn't come down to him as the original story. He just knew some of the story from oral tradition, even though um, people were writing things down in the medieval times. But um, still, I don't know. I haven't figured that one out yet. Um, so... Um, when you're understanding this comic world and you understand that this testing and this trickery and the disguises are more of um, a technique, really, a technique to survive, to survive in this world and make things right again. That's really the, the purpose of it. So um, through ingenuity and audacity, and that's from um, Louise Cowan's um, definition, that is Odysseus, ingenuity and audacity. That's how he's able to survive this really hard world that he's in. And then um, just, I just don't know everyone's background, so just super fast, quick um, kind of summary of the story so that everyone knows what I'm talking about. So um, he actually has a virtuous goal. He's trying to get back home. He's trying to get to his wife, to his son. And that's when like everyone in the classroom is like, the communal aww, with girls aww. Um, so getting back to his son getting back to his wife and he's been gone for 20 years so he's been fighting for 10 years in the war the Trojan War and now it's going to take him 10 more years to get back home so unfortunately um, he hasn't ever seen his son because um, he left when he was a baby so it's really hard, really a lot of hardship for him and being so far away from his family. So um, his goal is to get back home. And the problem is there are suitors, men who want to marry his wife because he's been gone so long. Even his own wife is starting to think, oh, maybe he's really not coming home. Maybe he really is dead. And she's kind of 
slowly, she doesn't want to give up hope, but she's like, oh, all these guys want to marry me. What do I do? And it's this weird time that Odysseus better hurry up. If he doesn't get there in time, um, she's going to marry somebody else. Um, so he wants to put things back where they're supposed to be. And he's going to transform from um, a poor beggar to a rich king, husband and father. That's the goal. So it's a very good, virtuous goal. Um, then just a little, a little bit more. Um, so Athena, she is the goddess of wisdom, and she's actually the one that's going to help him along, him and also his son Telemachus. She's the one who's helping them both all the way through the story. And um, she actually sends the son Telemachus away from home because he's grown up without a dad. So without a dad figure, um, he hasn't really learned how to stand up for himself. He hasn't learned how to be a man. He hasn't learned how to be mature. He's, he could be the king, but he's not. He's just sitting around kind of depressed as these 108 suitors take over the palace, eat all of Odysseus' food, drink their drink, party, have fun. And um, I, don't, I say to my students, like, have you ever had like those relatives that come over? <laughs> Or maybe your friends and they just like open the refrigerator, or help themselves. You know, maybe they stay past the time they should be there. And you're just like, oh, my gosh, get out of here. This is what it's like um, in Odysseus's palace because Penelope doesn't really want them there. She doesn't want to get remarried. And Telemachus doesn't even know what to do. He doesn't know how to get rid of them. And they are actually even plotting to kill him because they're worried that, oh, what if he does stand up to us? He's the one who should inherit the throne. Um, so going back to this kind of theme of trickery and testing, that's where all of those elements come in because the situation is bad. How is Odysseus going to resolve this problem? Um, his house is being ransacked. He doesn't even know. Does his wife love him still? He's been gone for so long. So it's just like all these questions, all these worries. So um, he finally gets back to Ithaca. So I'm skipping the whole fun part in the beginning. Um, when he gets back to Ithaca, he hears from Athena about what's going on at home. And this is just a quote from Athena. And she says, three long years they have played master in your house. Three years trying to win your lovely lady, making gifts as though betrothed. And she, forever grieving for you, missing your return. So he's like, three years? Oh my gosh, I have to go. I have to fix this. And then Odysseus is like, weave me a way to pay them back. And um, here's another kind of thing I get the students ready for. So from the very beginning of the story, we know that the suitors are going to be killed. And they're not allowed to feel bad for them. Because it's the Greek world and vengeance, like you want it to happen. You're like rooting for it. And I'm like, it's okay. We're in the pagan world and there is no other justice here. So this is okay. Um, so that's kind of hard to get over. Um, so just so you guys know, we want that to happen. Um, so then Athena, to help Odysseus, comes up with this really good plan. She transforms Odysseus into this old beggar. So she literally like takes a wand and transforms him into a beggar, old, dirty, um, hungry. And so he sneaks into his palace. And the idea is he's going to have time. So this thing with time, the right timing and all of that, here's where it comes in. If you're in a disguise, then you can figure out who is faithful, who is against me. 
Does my wife really love me? So you're like a fly on the wall observing everything and no one knows who you are. So it's a great plan. And um, another problem is that there's 108 suitors. So if he just comes home and says like, hi, I'm home, then he'd be like Agamemnon, who actually warned him in the underworld and said like, I know your wife is really great and all, but when I came home, my wife killed me. So maybe when you get home, you should just, you know, sneak in or, you know, be careful. And so, and what's funny is he does do that. He has this disguise on and he doesn't reveal himself even to his wife. Only um, Telemachus, his son, is the only one who he's revealed himself to. Um, so let me just read. There's a beautiful, I wish I could read the whole book out loud to you. Um, but there's this beautiful scene where Telemachus and Odysseus reunite. And I'm just going to read a little bit of that. So um, at first, Telemachus actually thinks he's a god. So this is before he's turned into a beggar. And um, once he realizes, oh my gosh, this really is my father. I haven't seen you in 20 years. Um, he throws his arms around this marvel of a father. I just love that line. He's a marvel, a marvel of a father. Um, and then they weep. They weep together. Salt tears rose from their well of longing in both men. And cries burst from both. So you just picture them, you know, both crying. And there's actually a beautiful simile after that that I didn't include um, that just keeps it going of just how, um, how much they're crying, how sad they are. So immediately after this, Telemachus and um, Odysseus, they start planning. All right, how are we going to kill everybody? Um, and so this beggar, this disguise, is going to be part of the plan. Um, and slowly they're going to start inviting other people, other faithful servants into their plan, but they want to just make sure, okay, are these, are these people trustworthy? Do we really trust them? Um, and then there's another scene which um, is um, really moving. And this is when the beggar Odysseus, so keep in mind, it's the beggar. So in disguise, the beggar Odysseus meets with his wife. And so he just has to restrain himself because imagine how he's feeling. He wants to hug her, kiss her, tell her, honey, I'm home. And so what he does instead is kind of interesting. It may seem kind of weird. So what he does is he describes Odysseus to her. And he says, oh, yeah, I know Odysseus. I remember, and he starts telling stories about him, what he was wearing the day that he left, this purple cloak with this brooch, with this snake on it. I mean, it goes into like all this detail. And so the idea is he's creating in the imagination of Penelope this image of Odysseus, of himself, right? And so it's like getting her ready for him to actually come home and getting her hopes up again, right? Because remember, she's kind of been down, kind of like, oh, I think I really do have to marry one of these suitors. Um, so now he's like filling her with this hope. And so, um, and she actually, let me have a quote from her. She actually says, um, she welcomes the beggar and she says, confiding in him, I have no strength left to evade marriage. So that's part of the reason. He, he's like, oh gosh, I better do something. And so, and it's a great idea. It works. So um, Odysseus, he, you know, tells her all this stuff about Odysseus. And, um, and then Penelope starts crying. So I love all this crying at the end is great. Um, the, the skin, so here's a simile. The skin of her pale face grew moist, the way pure snow softens and glistens on the mountains, thawed by south wind after powdering from the west, 
and as the snow melts, mountain streams run full. So her white cheeks were wetted by these tears shed for her Lord, and he close by her side. So at hearing these details of her own husband from her own husband, but not knowing it's her husband, um, Penelope's, her tears are described as snow melting and causing the mountain streams to overflow. That's how much she's crying. So we can imagine all the tears that are shed for the longing of her husband to return home. And as I was saying, Odysseus is planting that idea in her mind, in her imagination. And then imagine his heroic restraint, actually all the way through, especially this ending part. Um, that's one of the themes of um, the paper that the students can write if they want, that um, Odysseus has to restrain himself all the way through um, because especially here, he wants to just say, yes, I'm home, but he can't. If he does, not only will he be killed, but also his son Telemachus will be killed. They'll be murdered by the suitors. So restraint. And then um, this is a great description of this restraint. So imagine how his heart ached for his lady, his wife in tears, and yet he never blinked. His eyes might have been made of horn or iron for all that she could see. He had this trick though. He wept, if he willed to, inwardly. So he held his tears and he just wept inside. He couldn't show it. Um, so he loves the missus' his wife, of course, but he perseveres in concealing his identity because he realizes if he doesn't, then his plan will be ruined and he'll never be able to reestablish his household. Um, okay, I'm moving to another scene. So he finally is going to reveal himself, moving to the scene of reveal. And this scene is the testing um, of the bow. And Penelope comes up with the idea herself. She, her idea is, I'm going to have a contest. And um, this is something that Odysseus used to do, that he would use this special bow that was from one of his good friends, a special gift from a, from a, a friend. And he would um, shoot the arrow through and no one knows exactly what it looks like there's all sorts of different interpretations but anyway somehow whatever this means there's 12 axes lined up and there's a way that um, he shoots the arrow through the 12 axes and um, what's interesting though is right before she comes up with the idea that whoever wins the contest I'll marry she has a dream and the dream is inspired by Athena the goddess Athena and the dream is that an eagle is going to come down and break the necks of 20 fat geese. And then the beggar, here she confides that into uh, to the beggar, right, who's Odysseus. And Odysseus is like, oh, well, um, let me interpret that for you. The eagle is Odysseus coming home, and the fat geese are the suitors. So Odysseus is going to be coming home soon to kill the suitors. And she's just like, oh, no, 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 I can't believe it. I can't believe it. She doesn't let herself believe it yet. So he just continues as the beggar to reassure her. And it seems like to me, it doesn't say this, but it seems like to me that um, part of the reason why Penelope, even if it's not conscious, why she comes up with this particular contest is because she knows that only Odysseus is strong enough to string the bow. And you know what I mean by that, where you have to kind of, it's taut, so you have to bend um, the part of it, I don't know what that would be called, to um, put the string on it. And it's hard. And so she knows that only her husband can do it, never mind the um, 
shooting the bow through all the axes. So it seems like that maybe the contest is tied in with she does have hope. She does have, have that hope that he's coming home. So when Penelope actually gets the bow out of the storeroom, Odysseus didn't bring, bring it with him to the war. And so it's the first time that she's opened the door to this shed and it kind of like creaks open and everything's all dusty. And um, when she finds the bow and takes it out, she just starts crying because of course it reminds her of Odysseus, so more crying. Um, so she drew her husband's bow out and sobbed and bit her lip and let the salt tears flow. And then the bow, um, she brings it to where all the suitors are. The bow not only causes tears to fall for Penelope, but his faithful servants also um, start crying. So all the, so then he's like, oh, I know who's faithful now. It's these servants that are, that are crying for me. So they start crying. And then um, everyone is aching for Odysseus to come home. Everyone's crying that, that love him, not the suitors. Um, so the suitors, meanwhile, they're like, ooh, here's a chance. Here's where we can, we can marry Penelope. Finally, we can get his kingdom. That's really what they want. They want to be the king. So the suitors each try to string the bow. No one can do it. And they're like blaming this, blaming that, and let's try it tomorrow. And no one can do it. And Telemachus, he actually tries to string the bow. And at the last moment, he kind of stops realizing like, ooh, I could actually do this. I better not. Um, and then he gives it to his dad, um, the beggar. Remember, only Telemachus knows that it's really his dad. And so um, Odysseus take it, takes it. And the suitor's like, what? The beggar is taking the bow? What's going on here? And Penelope's there. And she says, no, it's fine. The, be the beggar can tr try it too. Not thinking, you know, oh, that's Odysseus. And so um, he takes the bow in his hand. It's this beautiful simile I want to read to you um, describing this. And Homer compares Odysseus taking up the bow to a bard taking up the lyre, which is like a harp. And um, let me just uh, read it to you. But the man skilled in all ways of contending, satisfied by the great bow's look and heft, like a musician, like a harper, when with quiet hand upon his instrument, he draws between his thumb and his forefinger a sweet new string upon a peg. So effortlessly, Odysseus in one motion strung the bow, then slid his right hand down the cord and plucked it. So the taut gut vibrating hummed and sang a swallow's note. So it seems like a harp to him because he's so, you, if, I don't know if anybody plays an instrument or if you can think of some other example that it's just so, even though it's been 20 years, it's so comfortable. He knows exactly where to put his hands. He knows exactly how to sit in the right position to string it. And it's just easy for him. Now, here's the interesting thing, though. Why, you might say, like, why would killing suitors with a bow um, be like a harper? playing the lyre you're just like what and bird i mean why this imagery hummed and sang a swallow's note and you're like getting ready to kill the suitors doesn't seem to match but homer's comparison of odysseus to a musician connects to the bard and i'm not sure if you know this the bard um, is the one who tells the story of the heroes and so one of the themes many themes of the odyssey is odysseus making a name for himself as a warrior because he wants to be remembered forever and in the stories. And so Odysseus here is like a bard and he's gonna sing his own song 
of the killing of the suitors. You know, he's the warrior here in this moment. Before he's the king and dad, he's still this warrior. Hasn't had that transformation yet. And so he's going to sing his own song, if that makes sense, um, of the killing of the suitors. He is the bard in this moment. Um, and then um, Zeus, just so you don't feel bad for the suitors, Zeus um, sends a sign, a thunder sign, the king of all the gods, because the suitors are breaking the law of hospitality. The law of hospitality says, um, yes, you have to take in the stranger and take care of them and show them hospitality. But if they start taking advantage of you for three years and wanting to marry your wife and wanting to murder your son, then you can kill them. Um, so warn your guests um, as they're coming in. So Odysseus has surpassed all the suitors in the contest and rightfully his wife will be his reward. So in a way, it's almost like a remarriage. They're renewing their vows, if you want to think of it like that, because in a way, they are. They're getting, they haven't seen each other in 20 years. So Odysseus, and the very last scene, so his wife, I forgot to say, um, Penelope, um, when he actually does that last part where he becomes the bard, Telemachus told her to go to her room. And so she doesn't see this part. And that's significant for two reasons. One, she, it's not the time yet for her to have the big reveal. And two, Telemachus is kind of mature. You see he's mature now. And he's like, Mom, this isn't the place for you. We're about to kill lots of people, so this isn't good for you to see. But also, this is like the man's world right now, so you don't need to be here anymore. And it seems, you know, today, you're like, what? Oh, my gosh. Um, but it's okay, because back then, that's how it was, that um, the women weren't hanging around for these contests. So, um, so in this last scene, Odysseus will meet his match. Um, now that he's put her to the test, with not revealing who he is and seeing, testing to see if she does really love him. Now it's gonna turn on him, on Odysseus. And this is the genius of Homer. So Penelope creates a reversal and Odysseus will now be tested. Even after her maid Eurycleia declares that Odysseus is alive, he's home and he's killed all the suitors, Penelope will not allow herself to believe it. She has been fooled one too many times in, the, in these last 20 years. And when she does finally meet him, neither one speaks. They're just like standing there silent. It's so awkward. And Telemachus actually scolds his mother for being so cold-hearted. And she replies, if really he is Odysseus truly home, beyond all doubt, we too shall know each other better than you or anyone. There are secret signs we know, we too. So before they reveal their secret sign, Odysseus decides to have the servants and bard celebrate a marriage feast so as to delay the revelation of Odysseus being home because the suitors' families are going to want revenge for Odysseus taking revenge on the suitors. And so um, they kind of, he makes it seem like Penelope picked one and that they're getting married. But in actuality, it's Odysseus marrying his own wife. Do you see what I mean? So it's like he, that's the restoring of the household in the sense that he's becoming the father again, he's becoming the husband again, he's becoming the king again. So, um, so that's going on. But then um, he he's, goes to bed, he's like, well, maybe she doesn't recognize me. I'm full of blood and dirt and gross, look terrible. I'll go take a bath, come back, get refreshed. She'll recognize me then. He comes back after his bath and still just nothing. And then she says, um, 
to her maid, why don't you move the bed outside the bedchamber so the beggar can sleep? And then Odysseus just gets furious. And he says, woman, by heaven, you've stung me now. Who dared to move my bed? No builder had the sill for that. Unless a god came down to turn the trick, no mortal in his best days could budget with a crowbar. There's our pact and pledge, our secret sign, built into that bed, my handiwork, and no one else's. So he gets so mad, you might be like, all right, calm down, what's his problem? Um, and the reason is because he made this bed, uh, okay, this is kind of hard to imagine, but um, the bed is made out of this olive tree that's like in the middle of the house, and part of the bed is actually part of this tree, and he made it himself, and no one else knows about this secret. This is their secret sign. No one knows about it. One maid, that's it. Um, no one else knows. And so when Odysseus hears about this bed, he's like, the bed has moved. You know, were you cheating on me? Were you, sleep were you sleeping with somebody else? Like, who could have moved it? So he's so confused and worried and mad. And so, um, so the bed represents not only their marriage and their love, it also represents the strength of their marriage. And if you think of a tree, you know, the roots that go down so deep. So this idea of um, how rooted their marriage is. So when Odysseus hears that Penelope can move the bed, she's like, oh, or he's like, oh, she's unfaithful. So his anger then, though, reveals his identity to Penelope because he knows the secret sign. Of course, why is he, he must still love her because he's so angry, right? So only her, uh, her husband knows the secret sign that their marriage bed is handmade out of the olive tree. Then, more crying, with eyes brimming with tears, she ran to him, throwing her arms around his neck and kissed him. She then apologizes for not trusting him, but she needed the sign to really believe it was him. And then he finally weeps and they embrace. Um, but one of my favorite images uh, that's so beautiful uh, is this simile, which is Athena holds back dawn so that they can have more time, an extended time together, extended night together. Uh, and here's how it's described. Um, the rose dawn might have found them weeping still had not gray-eyed Athena slowed the night when night was most profound and held the dawn under the ocean of the east. That glossy team, fire bright and day bright, the dawn's horses that draw her heavenward for men, Athena stayed their harnessing. So she's like holding back the horses, not letting them bring the sun up so that night would be over. So she's extending their night, just beautiful. Um, and then the chapter ends with um, their embrace. So they came into that bed so steadfast, loved of old, opening glad arms to one another. So it's this beautiful last image of um, being in the bed. And I didn't include in this that um, he does have to leave her and go on one more journey, but shh, that's <laughs> not in this paper. <laughs> Love happiness, marriage. So, um, so here's this idea of comedy then coming to fruition in the marriage that all this delay, the tricking, the disguises, now you see what the purpose of it all is. You see that there was no other way, that it was actually genius how he was able to 
bring it all about, um, his tricking and his deceiving. And then you even kind of admire him with his wit and his cunning, um, that he was able to make something that seems like it could be tragic into something comic. And how we know is the end, of course. There's not a suicide or um, everybody's dead in the end, except for the suitors, but everybody, like the Hamlet, everybody is dead. Um, so it's a positive, it's a positive, happy, happy ending. Um, okay, so I'm just gonna touch on um, a few final things from Merchant of Venice, um, just because it was so fascinating to me when I was reading it this year with the Odyssey at the same time, I was like, <gasps> Oh my gosh, there's so many similarities. Um, so just returning back for a second to the definition, just as a reminder. So for Shakespeare, it's even more obvious, Hamlet versus Midsummer's Night's Dream. Virgin of Venice is a little trickier. I'm avoiding the tricky part and just sticking with the comic part. Um, with Shylock, and uh, I don't know if you know the story, but um, with Shylock, um, who, depending on your interpretation, but how I teach it, is that um, he seeks vengeance and he ends up, even though he's not punished as harshly as he could have been, he's still punished pretty harsh and then he just sort of like disappears and you're like, so how's that part of the comedy? But I'm avoiding that and I'm focusing more on Portia and how Portia is like Penelope in so many ways. Um, and so going back to just the definition that I talked about before. So Shakespeare comedies is a world of music, revelry, love, forgiveness. And then again though, there are those tragic elements like with Shylock and it seems like everything could just be horrible, but in the last minute with disguise, with delay, um, trickery, all these things help everything kind of turn into something that is a celebration in the end of the story. Um, and then maybe just this idea of transformation. I didn't really focus on this, but it definitely happens with Odysseus too, that um, through the journey of the characters, they, in all of this suffering and delay and disguises testing, that they are educated, that they are learning, learning about themselves, learning about what marriage is, learning about what love is. And so Odysseus, he, it's not until that moment that he's ready to be with Penelope. And then the same thing here with Portia and Bassanio. I don't know if you know the story, but um, so I'm gonna back up a little bit and say a little bit about the story. So um, Shakespeare sets the whole story, so it's called Merchant of Venice, sets the whole story in Venice. And Shakespeare uses setting for a reason. And um, at this time, Venice is a place of um, commercialism. And um, according to the Greeks, um, if you think of Plato and the Republic, for example, the place um, and the type of government you have affects what kind of souls you're forming, what kind of souls you're making. And so um, in this place of Venice, he's kind of saying, oh, everything is kind of materialistic. It's um, buying and selling and exchanging, all this exchanging back and forth. And um, it kind of goes with whims and transitory passions. And then um, it kind of reminds me, uh, I was also reading Crime and Punishment as this, at this, with 12th graders, and Crime and Punishment, St. Petersburg is the setting. 
and St. Petersburg is the new Venice. I don't know if you know that, but uh, is, the, is the white Venice. I don't know, something like that. Is that right? So um, this idea of a shaky foundation because it's like little islands. Venice, I don't know if you know Venice, is little islands. And so not a good, strong foundation. Um, so kind of this idea of the pat, kind of putting it together with the passions. And then... Um, just what kind of souls are being formed there. If you're all about money and exchange and commercialism, then you're not really striving for virtue, the virtues. And so um, he has another city, though, to contrast. So just like with Dostoevsky and Tolstoy, they have Moscow as the traditional city and St. Petersburg as the new Western city where the bad philosophy comes in from the West, from Western Europe. And so in a similar way, um, Belmont is this sort of heavenly place and even the name Belmont is um, the beautiful mountain so it's even higher up so Venice is down low um, in the marshes and then um, Belmont is high up and then so high that it's not touched by the taint of Venice so um, Portia then it makes sense um, she's going to be from Belmont this heavenly place and if you want to imagine her as a symbol, um, she's kind of this action of grace in the world because she's going to take on a disguise and as a man. I mean, practically, you can't be a lawyer at this time as a woman, so practically it makes sense. But symbolically, she takes on the form of um, the disguise of a man um, so that she can help her husband, who's in a tough situation, and his friends his friend in particular, Antonio. So, um, oh my gosh, backing up a little bit. So Portia's father has passed away, but um, he left behind a test. And this test was um, three different caskets, one gold, one silver, and one lead. And the man who picks the right one, and it seems kind of like luck, um, is going to be the one that wins Portia's hand. But there's kind of like a little puzzle. So the um, suitors have to pick the right one, but there's little clues that kind of show what their character is like. So it's almost like the dad, who's really smart, thought of a way after his death that he could choose a good husband for his daughter. So um, like Penelope, um, Portia also has these suitors seeking her hand, but she's praying for Bassanio. She wants one in particular, and she's hoping and praying that he wins. So Bassanio, he does choose rightly. He chooses the lead one, and um, of course he's so happy. And um, inside of it is an image of Portia, and he just says like, oh, this doesn't even come close to how beautiful she is. Um, and he literally says, um, the substance of my praise doth wrong this shadow. In underprising it so far, this shadow doth limp behind the substance. So the image of Portia is just a shadow to what she really is. So they, he really does love her. And then um, Portia, she submits to Bassanio. She's like, okay, um, you're going to be my husband. I give you everything. She's wealthy, her city, her everything, her ships her house um, and herself. So she's taking a risk just like um, Bassanio took a risk. I didn't say the second part of um, this crazy plan of her dad was that if they lost, if they didn't choose the right one, they could never marry anyone else.
that's kind of important, sorry. Um, so um, Bassanio really takes a risk by making this guess. And thank goodness he actually wins. And the other suitors, they didn't win. Um, so the other ones had tried. So um, she gives over everything to Bassanio. And then she gives him this ring. And she says, okay, you're going to take this ring. And it's going to be a symbol of our love. And um, she, this is a quote, when you part from, lose, or give away, let it presage the truth of ruin of your love and be my vantage to exclaim on you. So she's like, take my ring, and if you take it off, it's over. Um, you don't love me. So it's like really drastic. And then Bassanio kind of like, yeah, I agree. This is great. And then he says, um, don't worry, I'm never going to take it off. But when this ring parts from this finger, then parts life from hence. Oh, then be bold to say Bassanio's dead. So the only way it's coming off is if I die. So no worries, my love. And um, <laughs> what's funny is when Portia takes, that, takes on that disguise to help Antonio, who's promised to, he's the one who's helped Bassanio get to Portia by giving him lots of money. And... Um, he borrowed it from Shylock. So here's kind of the rub. Um, he borrows it from Shylock, and now Shylock is like, okay, now you're going to have to give me what you signed the bond for, a pound of flesh. So basically, you're going to give me your life for um, helping your friend. So um, Portia is coming to the rescue. She's going to be the lawyer, and she's going to get them all out of this sticky situation, which she does. It's really quite amazing and I wish I could go into the, all the details but she gets them out of it everybody's saved except for Shylock and um, Bassanio or Portia um, is like you know thank you you know I'm going to leave now and Bassanio says wait 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 tell me what could I do for you anything and she's like actually I'd like that ring and um, the ring though is you know he can't take it off and then she's like you got to give it to me you got to give it to me as the lawyer he gives it to her, and um, of course, he had promised he would never take it off. And so when he comes home back to Belmont, she's like, oh, where's my ring? And he's like, ooh, well, it was for a good reason. I took it off. It was to save Antonio. And then she kind of makes this play at the end where, like, teasing on the one hand, but also it kind of reminded me of being a teacher where you're like teasing them on the one hand, but you're also like, you didn't really do a good job. Um, but you're, you don't want to say that directly. So she's like, um, you lied to me, basically. You betrayed me. And so it's a serious thing what he did, but she's kind of trying to teach him instead of just you know yelling at him. She's trying to teach him in this playful way um, to repent so that she can forgive him. And so that now he understands like, how serious their marriage is, how serious their love is. So this idea of um, being this teacher, this teacher figure. Um, okay, I'm kind of running out of time. So um, I'm just going to end with my um, conclusion here. So like Penelope, who tests Odysseus to see if he truly loves her, Portia tests Bassanio with this ring trick um, in order to reveal to him in a playful way the seriousness of their love and their marriage. And then I'm just going to end with going back to the Odyssey um, with a great quotation 
about marriage that's actually from earlier in the book. And he's actually talking about this with someone else, another girl, long side story I won't get into. But um, he says, a home, a husband, and harmonious converse with him, the best thing in the world, being a strong house held in serenity, where man and wife agree, woe to their enemies, joy to their friends, but all this they know best. So there's just this idea of the husband and the wife being on the same page and having harmony together. Okay, that's it. I ran out of time. <laughs> um,